0: This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.
2: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Hello and welcome to The stand with Amy Now earlier today. The new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and her Chancellor for the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwatang, made their first big political move since she took office. And it was what was called a fiscal event by the government, subsequently described as a mini-budget. It was not a budget per se, because if it was a budget, they might have had to run it past the Office for Budget Responsibility, which they refused to do. Quasi Quatang and Liz Truss are both fed up with what they call, and I quote, treasury orthodoxy. So they've broken with that, and I'm very happy to be joined from London by Chris Johns, former chief economist of the Bank of Ireland, now a respected commentator who watched the whole thing. Chris, I got glimpses of it. And I've seen some of the figures. What did you make of it? Well, it wasn't
2: a mini budget, and it was it was very much along the maxi size of anything. We're we we're searching for words that mean bigger, um, enormous. Uh, mini, it certainly ain't. And there are so many different threads here waiting to be unpicked. Um, I'm sure, as a high earning individual, when you will look on in envy at the. Uh, people who earn more than a million pounds or a million pounds in the U.K., they were given a £55,000 tax cut today.
0: Jesus. Um, oh, sorry, I shouldn't say so Jesus. Those people. God, forgive can't. me. It's all right. You, you can leave it in. I mean, it's, it's crazy stuff. I, I saw some of it go on. I know there's more to come as well.
2: There is. Um, those people that earn a million pounds in the year have christened the new chancellor quasi-ka-ching. Um, uh, so <laughs> that's a little unkind, I think. But uh, you can see where they're coming from. He's promised to cut the basic rate of tax as well from next April, the beginning of the UK financial year. He's confirmed that the energy price cap is going to cost £60 billion over the next six months, although he doesn't actually know that because it all depends on how bad the winter is and how high or low gas prices get to. Can I just
0: explain that or elaborate just to see if I have it clear? They've put an energy bill cap of £2,500 sterling, and they're going to keep it for two years, which brings them up to the next election. Am I right in that respect?
2: That's right. So it's it's a little confusing because that number of 2500 is an average. It's what the average household will pay. Um, it still means that you could pay more you could pay less depending on how much gas or electricity you use and how much it ends up costing the government because the cap is a ceiling that electricity gas companies can charge consumers, both household and now, we've learned in the last few days, businesses as well, they've been rescued from high energy prices as well with a cut in their potential costs of half, actually. So there's been a major announcement for pubs and restaurants and small businesses and other businesses as well. But if you, you know, as i said to you before, if you live in a big, drafty old house with lots of people, you could end up paying a lot more than 2500 It depends on how much electricity you, um, you consume, how much gas you consume, and how much it ends up costing the government will depend on the wholesale market for gas and electricity, which really means that we're all dependent on how bad the winter's going to be. And government finances in particular are going to be decimated if it's a really bad winter and the wholesale cost of gas goes up, which means that the cost of their cap, the subsidy they have to give, will go up. But vice versa, it's a very, if it's a very mild winter, then it could well be that it doesn't cost them very much at all. So we shall see. Um, yes,
0: and the big idea behind it announced beforehand was to give all of these tax cuts on the basis that if you give people money in their pockets, they will spend it and you will get growth. That's probably a gross oversimplification, but this is a theory that was tried before. There was a budget in 1982, the Chancellor's name was Barbara, I think it was Ted Heath's government, 1972,
2: Which, actually. I'm sorry.
0: 72, sorry, it's not 72. That's right, Ted Heath. And I think it crashed the British economy, didn't it? Or yes. really?
2: It, it certainly contributed to inflation. It contributed to high government borrowing costs. And ultimately, it contributed to Ted Heath losing power. I mean, that yes. was a political consequence of, of the Barber boom, as it's called. And he's been deemed to be one of the worst chancellors in history for doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And every orthodox economist is saying about this budget, because that's what it is, let's, let's call a spade a spade here, um, is going to run the risk of repeating exactly what Tony Barber did back in the early 1970s, the wrong things at the wrong time. Because um, UK has an inflation problem, it has a very tight labour market, and it has a central bank, the Bank of England, that's putting up interest rates. So the first One of the first of many things it sets up is a potential conflict of economic policy, and that's between the Treasury and um, the Bank of England. The Treasury, under the direction of Kwasi Kwarteng, is now going for it big time with a big demand-boosting budget, because amongst the other measures that we haven't mentioned today, um, national insurance, a planned rise in that is going to be reversed, and stamp duty on houses is going to be cut. There's going to be a reform of the planning system in the hope that more houses and other businesses can, can be built. So, so it's huge. There, there's stuff going on all over the place. But it's a big boost to demand, which in the wider scheme of things, at the time of recession, because the, we learned yesterday that the Bank of England thinks, A, the UK economy is in recession yes. right now, and that it will last well into next year, if not beyond. You might think, well, giving the economy a boost is a good thing. The problem, of course, is that the Bank of England is very worried that even though we've got a recession, it's a pretty mild one at the moment, inflation is a real, real problem. So hence, it put up interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point yesterday and promised much more to come. And so you have fiscal policy, which is what we've had today with the um, mini budget, and monetary policy yesterday pulling in opposite directions. And that is potentially disastrous for the economy starting with financial markets, because the first thing to notice today about the reaction to both yesterday's events and today's is that sterling is crashing. Well, sorry, let's let's be precise about this. Sterling is going down again, and the all-important government borrowing cost, um, bond yields, to to use the jargon, they're going up big time. They have been for a few days now, and this morning they've reacted very, very badly to this. So the financial markets, at least today, right now, as we speak, are giving a big thumbs down to
0: what- And if, if the pound sterling devalues to this extent, particularly against the dollar, but uh, devalues in general, that is bad for inflation because everything you import costs more.
2: Absolutely. It puts all your import costs up. Yeah. And at a time when the, the most important import cost is that of energy... One of the peculiarities of global energy markets is they're all priced in dollars. So that, that dollar price might not change, but we've just had a big hike in oil prices in sterling terms this week, for example, um, and in anything else that we import that is priced in dollars, we get a double whammy. So it really isn't a good look. The, the So it really is a problem of increasing demand at a time when you have an inflation problem. Ultimately, the public finance is, um, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, which has kind of sort of done what the Office for Budget Responsibility would have done if it had been called a budget, one of the things that you rightly say is that they don't like scrutiny. That's, that's a bit of a, a giveaway, isn't it, about this, is that they're not allowing the OBR to do their usual thing. But other economists, other agencies have done it. And they've said things like that they, they are taking huge, grave risks with the public finances. And if government interest costs spiral away, the debt interest bill, not least, will will obviously go up. And there'll be all sorts of implications like that. But politically, it's also... So there are lots of economic consequences which, you know, deserve great scrutiny. But for me, as interesting are the political consequences because there's now, for once, absolutely clear daylight between what these people are up to and what the Labour Party has to promise. This is now uh, the party of tax cuts, deregulation. And to be honest, Eamon, I think they're finally doing what they said they would always do with Brexit because they're talking about deregulation, another measure today, another EU regulation, bankers' bonuses, that's been scrapped, and they're promising by the end of next year to scrap all EU regulations. So they're going for the so-called Brexit dividend. They're trying to put political clear blue water between themselves and the Labour Party via taxation, saying, look, we've done it. We have cut your taxes across the board and this is the party opposite who will put your taxes up. So it's old-fashioned fiscal politics again, which we haven't seen the likes of for a long, long time. So it's a huge gamble. Politically, you can see why they've done it, because the economics of this are now starting to get very toxic in the UK. The simple fact is that this is where I do have a smidge, a sliver of sympathy for what they're trying to do, because really since the financial crisis, so we're talking more than a decade now, on a whole host of measures, income per head and all sorts of things like that, but also critically, investment in the economy by both private and public sectors. All of these things that we look at as economists, they stagnated. The British economy has stagnated now for more than a decade. People are used to economies going up and down over time, the odd recession coming here and there. But basically, people in the UK, particularly in the post-war period, anybody of my age or younger, is used to things over a course of a decade, getting better. Now, we've just had a decade where they haven't. And I think that's producing all sorts of deep thinking. And one of the results of that deep thinking is Qu- Quartain and Trust have said, well, we've got to do something differently. And I wouldn't have chosen what they've done, but I think their, their fundamental analysis of the problem and coming up with the conclusion, something has to change radically because we are going nowhere as an economy with all of the social tensions that, that and political tensions that that produces. Because when you have an economy that is stagnant, not doing anything in particular, all of the political and economic battles are about redistribution. It's about a fixed cake. The cake is no longer growing, so you can't share it around. You can't waffle on about trickle-down economics because there's nothing trickling down because nothing's happening. So all of the battles become about sharing the existing cake. And the longer that goes on, the more toxic it becomes. And that's really the story of Britain, of the UK, over the last 10 years, and people are really starting to notice this now. And so given this problem, you've got to come up with a set of solutions to cure it. Now, these are their solutions. This is what they're doing today. They're saying, we're going for it on taxes and spending, and we're blowing up the, the, the public finances. We're risking the Tories' reputation for sound public finances because we think this will unleash economic growth. Yes. I would say good luck with that. Every orthodox economist, apart from somebody called Patrick Minford, is saying this will not work. But I understand why they're doing it.
0: Right. And there's a couple of other things. First of all, the relationship between Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss, they have been close politically for a long time. They were co-authors with two other Tories of a book which was published 10 years ago when they were backbenchers. And one of the things they declared in their book, and I'm quoting, is British workers are the biggest idlers in the world. And they have, it seems, adapted their politics, or if you like, calibrated their politics on that principle. But the other thing that I noticed yesterday was Jacob Rees Monk, who is the business secretary now, announcing fracking was going to begin again, and it's a very controversial and not very environmentally friendly way of getting energy, and also that they were going to give out 100 licenses to go down for oil in the North Sea. Now, how does that fit with their environmental commitments? COP26 was only a year ago.
2: They don't fit with environmental commitments at all, and you can see them rowing back on those big time.
0: Um, First of all, let's get a, try and get a handle on them politically, Chris. On the political spectrum, Reese Mogg, Tang, Truss, and the health secretary, who's a friend of Liz Truss and a close colleague, they've done away with the national insurance rise that was meant to provide the hundreds of millions the National Health Service needs badly. They've abolished that this morning. That was a commitment she made in her campaign. So what? how would you characterize, on the political spectrum, this Tory cabinet?
2: Well, it's certainly of an old-fashioned right-wing, Reaganite, Thatcherite persuasion. There's no doubt about that. This whole, we can boost the economy, solve both economic, political, and social problems. Via massive tax cuts um, is pure Thatcherite Reaganism of a, of a simplistic kind because Margaret Thatcher was a little bit more sophisticated than that in her approach to policy. And a
0: lot more cautious.
2: Yeah. This, this, one big contrast to be drawn is that this is a huge gamble on their part. And she didn't take those kinds of risks. She, she waited a long period of time, prepared and did all sorts of things before she did anything. She would never have done this actually because she would not have run. Taken the risk of, of, of that they are taking with the public finances, um, with sterling, with interest rates. The, the, one of the things that um, could come back to haunt them is something from my past as an economist, as a treasury, ex treasury economist, actually. Um, when, so when they cast aspersions at the treasury, I sometimes take it personally. Um, the, the country has a huge balance of payments deficit, it's a very old fashioned concept. Um, we export far less than we import. So as a result, to use Mark Carney, the ex-governor of the Bank of England's words, we rely on the kindness of strangers, because that deficit has to be financed with flows into sterling. And so there could be an old-fashioned sterling crisis, which is words I haven't used, gosh, since the 1980s, actually. Um, And we may well be in the foothills of one of those. So um, they are right-wing, but they are gamblers in a way that previous right-wingers haven't taken those kinds of risks. Um, and and they are radical. Um, you mentioned the book *Britannia Unchanged* is remarkable um, piece of prose, I must say. And uh, the, the, the other authors were Dominic Raab and Priti Patel, no longer part of the <laughs> oh, God. Uh, no longer yeah. part of the administration, because this is a, this is an administration of friends uh, as much as uh, ideological yeah. soulmates. These oh, people cronies. live near each other. And um, the, the, I think the reason, the main reason why people like Raab and Patel are no longer in the cabinet is she's not taken a view of her their competence. God forbid that we should ever do things like that. I think she just doesn't like them. And, and so it's personal. So there are many unusual aspects to this lot of right-wing ideologues. Um, the traditional... Uh, right-wing thing is that you don't take risks with the public finances. You are normally a sound money person. and so that's one key difference between traditional right-wing politics and economics and what this lot are doing. They're taking a huge gamble with the public finances, but pursuing um, traditional radical tax-cutting policies in the hope that everything trickles down eventually to everybody and they, and they become popular.
0: One of the economists I I watched on television reviewing this, who was neutral, really, in a political sense, he made a point, Chris, that real change to the housing market, to whatever you want to change in your economy, whether it's the National Health Service, whatever it is, it takes maybe 10 or 15 years. In other words, there is no magic bullet. You can't just, you know, snap your fingers or produce spectacularly radical policy papers, or policies indeed, and get instant results. There's two years to the next British election, which has to be held in 2024. So that must be part of the risk they're running. Yeah,
2: and I suspect they know this. And if they didn't know it, they'd have been told by, ironically, the Treasury There is no magic elixir for economic growth. And there's certainly nothing you can do in the very short term other than what they're doing to to boost growth. Because one of the things it will do, it it will boost growth over and above what it would otherwise have been. But given that we're in recession, it may not feel that way. um, Because make no mistake, this is a a boost to, to the economy. It might ultimately all be dissipated in inflation rather than real growth. That's the economist in me speaking. Um, and, that, and again, that this is one of the risks that they're running. The only way you can do anything about economic growth, as I said earlier, they've had 10 years where they haven't really had any to speak of in, in any meaningful way, is that you've got to adopt at least a decade-long series of policies to try and boost Britain's economic problems. And it requires lots of micro-measures to do with productivity, um, to do with planning. I was very pleased to see today that he has pl- promised... A reform of the British planning landscape because that's much needed. It's much needed in your country, in Ireland as well, because it essentially, and this is an exaggeration, um, but it, it carries, it, it makes the point that the, the way the planning regime is operated in the UK is essentially a NIMBY's charter. It just stops anything from happening, anything meaningful anyway. And we've got to build lots and lots of things. We've got to build lots of houses. We've got to build lots of w- more wind and solar farms. And, and the planning regime gets in the way of all of those things. It's, it's true in the UK. It's true also, as I say, in Ireland. So that's that's a good thing. But reforming the planning system to boost your economic growth might be something that gets the, a seal of approval from the likes of me. But it will be years before, A, they actually manage to do it, and B, before any of the effects of that come through. And that's true of anything that you do to boost economic growth. First of all, you're not sure what's going to work. Um, you certainly don't know when it's going to work. But one thing you can be sure of it's unlikely to work in anything other than over the medium to long term. And from an electoral political cycle, that's no good. Because as we, as you have said, they've got to have an election within the next two and a bit years. And uh, they've got to do something to get their, you know, the opinion polls are saying they're going to lose that general election. And this is their response, their political response, via economics, to getting that gap between them and the opposition closed. <laughs>
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their
2: story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may
0: vary. Now, Chris, Liz Truss was in Washington and she met Joe Biden before she met him the day before. In fact, Biden tweeted that he was sick and tired of hearing about trickle-down economics and they subsequently met. My understanding from my sources is the meeting did not go down very well and there was no chemistry there. And this brings me to the critical matter of the Northern Protocol and the legislation that she has as Foreign Secretary drafted and got through the House of Commons. But there is a bit of a holdup in the Lords. This. People are not likely to care very much about Ireland, are they?
2: No, they're not. Um, but she or,
0: ha- or even to, to understand it
2: very much. No, and they never have done, and they never will do. Um, that, that is just a fact of life, Eamon. Um, it, it, having lived in Ireland for a long time and, and being British, I'm, I've always been fascinated to note that um, the Irish are typically much more informed, much more interested in British affairs than the other way around. Um, it, 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 I learned more about British history living in Ireland than I did living in Britain. Um, it, it is just a, f- a fact of life. Trickle-down economics is what this is all about, in that the, the uh, measures that... Can you
0: explain for to me and our listeners what trickle-down economics as a theory is? That if you do
2: things like they've done today, which is uh, tax cuts for the rich because this is, all, this is all about tax cuts for people who earn lots of money, people who don't earn much money will not get very much benefit from all of this, is that the extra economic growth that that will produce will mean more jobs, will hopefully mean higher paid jobs, and will mean extra tax revenues for the government so that eventually this um, fiscal uh, risk that they're taking will pay off because the, the higher economic growth, the bigger your economy the more tax revenues will be generated. When I worked in the Treasury in the 1980s, long time ago, Eamon, this was all the rage because of Reagan and yeah. what was called another another label for um, trickle-down economics is supply-side economics. You, yes. you boost the productive capacity of the economy by taxing them less. And um, the work that I and others did in the Treasury back then internally showed that it, it it's... It's an illusion. It, it doesn't work. There are only very, very special circumstances which tax cuts can, for example, be self-financing. And sometimes they occur, but more often than not, they don't. And they certainly do not at the moment. Um, the, the idea... That there's, I, in, I could talk about trickle-down economics in terms of a joke that um, economists tell, but economist jokes usually <laughs> only economists get them. But trickle-down economics is all about giving money to the 1%. um, But the problem is 99% of you won't get it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. We'll figure that one out, uh, Chris. Just a, a final question about the difference between this policy and the policy pursued by Boris Johnson and his government about six or eight weeks ago.
2: Well, I think the main one is that it is a big, radical, bold set of policy proposals. All Johnson ever did was talk about headlines, talk about things that got him headlines. He never actually did anything. So they talked, for example, a lot about levelling up, and nothing ever happened. Now levelling up feels like a different geological age today because there's nothing in any of this that uh, speaks to levelling up. So all of the things that Johnson put in his manifesto Um, All he ever did was waffle on about them and never actually did anything. So there were never any big, bold policy proposals from the Johnson government. It was just all drift, all media management. This is policy. This is serious, hard policy choices being made. Now, we might disagree with them, but that is the key difference between them. And I said to you in a previous podcast that um, the... Uh, watch what these people do rather than what they say. So we have noticed that during the campaign she said she, she wouldn't give any handouts to people for their energy bills and she's just done the biggest peacetime fiscal intervention in British history. Like That's just the energy thing, let alone all these other things that they're doing. The energy thing alone, the subsidy, is the biggest peacetime fiscal intervention potentially in the history of the British state. So that's already a, a direct contrast. She, you've mentioned the the Irish question, the um, Northern Ireland Protocol, which, as you have said many times, Liz Truss wrote. Um, she's now invited Joe Biden to come to Britain for the, I think it must be the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement next year. Twenty fifth, yeah. She wouldn't have done that if she didn't think that there was going to be some resolution to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And all of the mood music, all of the chatter out of Westminster is that there is going to be some kind of a deal. Now, it remains to be seen. We might be deeply and profoundly sceptical. The EU this week has said that nothing substantial has changed in the background talks that are still going on. But I don't think she would have invited Joe Biden to Britain to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement if she didn't think that there was something uh, going to happen to the Northern Ireland Protocol such that there wasn't going to be an enormous row between her and Joe Biden about the Northern Ireland Protocol. So I right. think that um, we really do need to be watching what these people do rather than what they say. And th- I think whether Rubber's going to hit the road on this one is really over Northern Ireland, because I do think that there is a change going on in terms of how the British are approaching that. That might be a full-on hope. It might come all crashing now. But because, as we have said so many times, it makes no sense to be picking a huge row with your biggest trading partner and the most important economy in the world, the United States. So you're surrounded on both sides by Europe and America, who you are rowing with, that you really want to be exporting to um, at the time of, as I mentioned earlier on, when your exports are really, really suffering and hurting your growth agenda. It makes no sense to have this row over Ireland, and it makes abundant sense to get it sorted. Now, I, I, I'm reluctant to say the good sense is going to prevail, because for so many years now, it hasn't in British politics and economic policy. But on this one, it you know the need for both from a political and an economic point of view, and from an Irish point of view, to get this thing sorted successfully is now so pressing that I think even these right-wing ideologues might actually get it.
0: Okay, Chris, just a final question. This is a big gamble, correct? If it is correct. If it's not, correct me.
2: It is a a, a huge, enormous gamble.
0: When will the first tangible sign of whether or not it's going to work be?
2: Well, you could argue that we've already seen it in the financial markets today, with the behavior yes. of the pound sterling and government yep. borrowing costs. That won't right. touch most people's lives. But certainly for those of us that look at these things, you can see there. there's amber warning lights being being flashed there. I think it's more about time than specific things. I think that this time next year, when we've just got maybe a year or so to go for the next general election, if interest rates haven't gone up a lot, And if the job market has stayed reasonably strong and the recession hasn't been too bad, uh, I think that they will claim victory. Um, And I suppose the most important thing that they will be looking at now is what does this do in the opinion polls? Because as I say, we now for the first time in years have this gap between labor and conservative policies they well, one of the tricks that the conservatives have done for many years is just nick the best labor policies for example that's not going that's not happening anymore so okay. they they will claim victory no matter what the economic data says if if the if the tax cuts prove to be politically popular notwithstanding a fall in the pound or rising interest rates then um they're going to claim victory The thing about rising interest rates is that's going to impact people much, much more than it will than, say, the pound sterling will because, of course, that's mortgage rates.
0: Okay, Chris, we're very, very grateful to you, former chief economist of the Bank of Ireland and, of course, now a very respected commentator. Thanks to Chris. Thanks to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.
2: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
1: So Robert, tell the people, what's a pretendian? It's just what it sounds like, Angel, a pretend Indian. Someone who fakes being one of us.
2: Someone who impersonates a native.
1: We're talking about real scammers and con artists.
2: There are pretendians teaching at universities, pretendians running governments, pretendians in Hollywood.
1: On our new podcast, we will tell you the incredible story of these jaw-dropping
2: frauds. Who are they? Why do they do it? And how the heck do they keep getting away with it?
1: Listen to Pretendians on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Acast helps creators launch,
0: grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.